what I want to do is kind of look in the middle of these passages, 5, 6, and 7. I want us to look at chapter 6 and uh, read a couple of verses there. Then I want to go back and see some of the principles we gain from chapter 5 and then chapter 6 as well. And I'll, I'll comment briefly on chapter 7. But if you found your place, Nehemiah chapter 6, we'll start with verse 1. It says, when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, though at the time I had not installed the doors in the gates. Uh, there were places, I mean, the, the wall was now uh, all the way around Jerusalem, but there were still some uh, finishing jobs to be accomplished. It says at that point, Samballat Geshem sent me a message. Come, let us meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, and uh, we've heard it before perhaps, that when he was invited to the Valley of Ono, what did he say? Oh no. <laughs> oh no, I'm not going. I, I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it to go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal, and I gave them the same reply. And then the sand balance sends this letter we'll get into in just a moment. But let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand how we can finish strong the work that God's called us to. Father, we're, we're thankful as we come into your presence that any that's done in us or through us is by your grace and for your glory. We can do nothing in and of ourselves, and in Christ we can do all things because you strengthen us and empower us for the work that you call us to be a part of. And Lord, there's no greater joy than the journey of walking with you, knowing you, making you known, and being involved in work that matters for eternity, that makes a difference. Every one of us, Father, not just this pastor or the staff of this church. Every one of us have a calling from you. And every calling is valuable, equally valuable for the kingdom. And I pray that we would be sensitive and obedient to that call. Pray that we would understand what it takes to finish strong and commit ourselves to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I'm going to try to pronounce a word for you that I may get wrong. It's from two Greek words. It's a compound. Lampadadromia. Don't ask me to do it again, but it comes from two words. One, we get our word lamp. It's the Greek word for torch. The other word has to do with, we get the word drome, like D-R-O-M-E, but the word for race or stadium event, things like that. And so this Greek word refers to something that, was, that took place in the English, we might just simply call it the torch race. If you've ever gotten ready for the Olympics before, you know what the um, torch relay is all about, even though all of that is now carefully staged today in the modern Olympics. It was kind of revived in the 20th century because it, it reminded the Olympics uh, or the, the Olympians of something that took place in the ancient Olympic Games called the torch race. Now that torch race was not like the torch race today. Uh, you might remember the imagery from uh, when the Olympics were in Atlanta and at the end the last person to take the torch and to light the Olympic torch was uh, Muhammad Ali, the, the boxer as he stood there and uh, many were kind of even broken hearted to see the physical condition he was in at the time but as he lit the torch 
And that torch lighting from uh, one Olympics to the next is always a, an inspiring and emotional part of the Olympics. But in the original Olympic Games, it wasn't like that. It wasn't that, okay, this is a carefully staged event. Instead, it was an actual race. The torch race was a race that was run and the point of the race was not simply to finish first. You had to finish with your torch still lit. If it went out somewhere along the way, you couldn't just relight it. You were eliminated from the race at that point. So it wasn't like, you know, we used to have the little potato races with the, with the this potato on the spoon when I was a kid, and we'd have some kind of relay, and if you dropped it, you picked it up, put it on a spoon, you started over. They couldn't start over. The point was to finish the race first, but more importantly, with your torch still lit. And that person not only won that event, but they were the one who got to light the torch, the Olympic torch for the games in the ancient Greece during those days. Now, that all was based on mythology, that, that the, the Greek god, the Titan god Prometheus, supposedly had snatched fire. He had captured fire from Mount Olympus, and so that was all to be some commemoration of this ancient Greek god. And, and you know, we understand that's all mythology, but let me tell you something that's very real. What is very real is when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have joined a race, a race where Paul says that we're to run in such a way as to win the prize, because those who race in the games, they do it for a crown that will not last forever, but in our spiritual journey, we run for a crown that will last forever. Paul said, therefore, I discipline my body, I make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I would not be disqualified from the prize. Paul would later be able to give us his valedictory. In his letter to Timothy, a second letter to Timothy, when he said, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, remember he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And what I think Paul would want to communicate to us is that not only was he coming to the finish line, but he was finishing the race with his torch still lit. And church, it's my desire as a follower of Jesus Christ to not only finish the race and to finish well, but I want to finish with the torch still lit. I want to finish the race with more fire in my heart and in my life for Jesus than I've ever had in my life. I want to fight that good fight. And I pray that's your desire. I pray that's the desire of the church. I pray it's the desire you have for anything God calls you to is to finish strong. Finish Strong. Now last week we talked about the fact that when they were doing this work, they were building the wall, they were well organized. Nehemiah had done a superb job of getting them organized and stationed around the wall. We saw that they were opposed by an enemy who was trying to stop that work, but that they were well outfitted for that work that God had called them to do. They were armed and equipped with the right tools, with the right weaponry at the same time. They were ready for the battles that would come their way. Now, all of us, hopefully during this time, our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, can think of various projects that we've been called to be a part of. We can think of our opportunities that we get involved in, in life that God calls us to be a part of, and not those things that would distract us, as we'll see are taking place here in this text in just a moment. 
We can think of places of ministry, especially this time in the life of a church. This morning, eavesdropping a little bit on our ministry placement team, but trying to uh, help people discover their places of service. Every member, as we said last week, is a minister. We all have a place on the wall that we're to be responsible for, so we can think of those places of service and ministry. And in all of those areas, it should be our goal to finish strong. A lot of times we fire out of the starting gates and we're like that guy who was in a, in a long uh, uh, race, but he started off sprinting and that he didn't last long, didn't endure for the race. And everybody passed him by. Through the seasons of life, we want to finish strong. I, I can't tell you how many of you posted this week on social media pictures of your children, and for a certain number of you, it was a last first day. I remember say, I don't remember ever seeing that phrase so many times as I saw it this past week. Last first day. You know, if it was fifth grade, last first day of elementary school. Uh, eighth grade, last first day of middle school. Um, if it was uh, senior, like my daughter is going to start this Friday, her last first day of high school. And, and so there was a lot of those reminders that, man, there is a season of life that is coming to an end. So whether you're in the 5th grade, 8th grade, 12th grade, I pray that it will be your goal to say, I'm going to finish strong. I'm not going to slow up. I'm not going to coast. I'm not going to crawl to the finish line. I'm going to finish strong. There may be seniors in college here. Finish strong. It's seasons of life. For some, they have started a season of life called marriage. And, and so life is full of seasons. I had the experience which was both spiritual and emotional for me on Friday to think about this, to take this in. But on Friday, within half an hour's time, I was at a place where we were celebrating brand new life as uh, Stephen and Amanda Smith had welcomed a baby girl into this world. A half hour later, I was at a funeral where Mark Austin was telling his father goodbye. Just in a half hour's time, at both of those seasons, the beginning and the end, and it makes you think about how you start and how you finish. And church, I want to finish well. And so whether it's beginning your marriage, beginning family, beginning a new career, or a project you just happen to be tackling at this season, some of us are already in the second half of life. You know, I'm amazed at how many people refer to like age 50 as midlife and how few people live to be 100 years old. Some of you much younger than me are probably at midlife and nobody knows the number of our days and so we have to make certain adjustments in life to say if I'm going to finish strong, here's an adjustment I need to make. If, if I'm not going to coast to the finish line and get passed up or, or, or throw in the towel and quit the race. Remember last week, we kind of wrapped it up by saying we need to replace the words with uh, the words I quit with hand me another brick. And there were some here last Sunday morning who were saying, that's me. And some of you told me as much. God's speaking to me. I need to replace the words I quit with hand me another brick and get back in the race. I want to finish strong. Well, what can we do? There are three keys in this text that we're going to see this morning to finishing strong. A lot of this speaks of a group effort, and we'll see that we need God and we need the people of God in our lives. You may also apply much of this to your own life in calling what God is doing in your life personally, as Nehemiah was doing a personal work, but yet it was a, a work for God and for his kingdom 
as well, and it certainly involved the people of God. And, and the first thing that I want to share with you this morning is something that I ask our staff and our church leaders constantly to do. And that is this, that we need to protect the unity and team effort in the process. We need to protect the unity and the team effort in the process. So to understand what, where we're coming from here, let's go back to see what was happening in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is not one of those glory chapters that we like to just camp in and say, man, this is when everything was just happening right. But there was a beautiful correction that was made when there was a lack of unity and team effort in the process. He said there was, and this, uh, let's read the first 13 verses here, there was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against the Jewish countrymen, their own Jewish countrymen. This battle came from within, not from without. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. So let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Man, we, we need to survive here. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during a famine. And we're, we're, we're putting ourselves in great debt and great slavery here. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Listen, to, to, to work off this debt, this situation that we're in to our own countrymen, you go and you go be their servant for a while. We need you to just help us get out of this mess that we're in. And he said, some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. He says, I became extremely angry. Not that people had just gotten themselves into that situation, but that there were others who were in a better situation that were exploiting the poor circumstances of their own countrymen. He says, when I heard this outcry, I became extremely angry. The Bible doesn't say anger is a sin, by the way. It says, be angry and sin not. Remember, Jesus got angry when he went into the house of the Lord, and the people there were exploiting. that The whole money changers thing, it wasn't because somebody brought their school fundraiser to church, even though that's not always cool, right? But it wasn't just because somebody brought their school fundraiser to church. It was because they were exploiting those who didn't have means in the house of God. And so that's happening even here. There were people that were in good shape exploiting those who were not in such great shape. And so he says, I accuse the nobles and officials saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners but now you sell your own countrymen, and we have to buy them back. They remain silent. That's called conviction. <laughs> Man, Nehemiah just nailed us right here. He's not even the preacher. He's the lay leader. He's the politician. Here he is stepping on our toes. He says they could not say a word. Then I said, what are you doing? What you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies. If we can't get along with each other, if we can't love each other and take care of each other, then the enemy is just going to laugh at us and let us self-destruct. He said, even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please let us stop charging 
this interest. I'm not sure if Nehemiah says, I'm guilty of the same sin you're guilty of, but he's saying what we're all doing has to stop. It says, return their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, olive oil that you have been assessing them. And then he said, they responded with, we will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priest, made everyone take an oath to this. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, may God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. It would have been the equivalent of us pulling our pockets inside out and saying, look, I'm, I'm emptying myself of self. And may God empty us of anything that doesn't please him. And the rest of the chapter kind of explains that there had been a pattern. Those who were in positions of leadership had been bad examples for everybody else. And so they had exploited one another instead of what we see in Acts chapter 2 where the church comes together and they begin to look out for one another and take care of one another rather than exploit one another. And so this is not the attack. Keep in mind here. When we talk about protecting the unity and team effort, this attack, this situation is not coming from the enemy. It's not an attack from the outside. That would have been enough to concern them. What we saw last week with the opposition of the enemy, that would have been enough. What's worse is when the attack comes from within. When the people of God aren't unified. And, you know, Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. And when we don't have that refreshing unity Psalm 133 talks about, then it becomes a sad thing and a devastating thing. We begin to self-destruct. And it's very subtle. It's not overt. It's kind of hidden. It's friendly fire. It's, it's leveraging our influence to compete against God's people. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are not our enemies. They're not somebody we are in competition with. They're not somebody we exploit. They are people that we need. We are a family that's to be on the same page, working together for the same cause of Christ. Those who had power were exploiting it for personal gain when they should have been being obedient. What Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from them who deserve it if it's in your power to do something. If you're in a situation where you have spiritual leverage, whether you have financial leverage, whether you have leadership leverage because of position and influence, you're to leverage that for the good of the whole body and for the glory of God. So perhaps you have that, maybe you have a hold on somebody because you know something they've been involved in, you know somewhere they've been, you know something they've done and you won't let it go. Nehemiah would say, we've got to let it go. Even in the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us to forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. The word debt having to do with transgressors, those who would sin against us. says, forgive it. Let it go. Don't leverage that for your own gain, but leverage it for the glory of God and liberate people and set them free. Proverbs 19.11, it is the glory of a man to overlook a matter. And so there are a lot of things in our life that could upset us and we could have problems, and we are as a family, not perfect people, but as a family of God, we're going to do things that rub one another the wrong way. We're going to have people who get on our nerves. We're going to have, even in the kingdom of God and in your family 
And in every family, there's going to be personality conflicts in your workplace. And as you go back to school, young people, you're going to find somebody that they're not necessarily wrong, nor are you, but you're going to have personality clashes. And it's going to be the glory of a man, the spiritual maturity of a human being, to just overlook a matter and let that go. We're not likely to defeat. We're not likely to defeat the enemy in the fight if we're at each other. And so, one of the number one responsibilities the people of God have is to protect the unity in the team effort. You can ask our staff, anybody who comes here. Pastor Ben will often repeat this. He'll say, uh, "Here's how I handled this, Pastor Robbie, because you told me the number one thing is protect." the unity of the church. And so people that have been around me know that's been my heart ever since God called me to be the pastor here, knowing the history of Madison County and knowing even some things our church had been through. My number one priority was protect the unity of the body of Christ. Protect the unity of the church. And so what happens? Even Paul, the church at Philippi, if you'll flip over to Philippians chapter 2, the church that he would tell to rejoice in the Lord always again and again rejoice. This joyful book that has so much wonderful truth in it about rejoicing. Paul has to deal, even in this book, with disunity. Chapter 4, he even calls some names and deals with it straightforward. But in chapter 2, he sets the tone. He gives us the theological uh, standing for the unity that he's arguing for. And he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. In the King James Bible it says bowels. I used to read that and say bowels. <laughs> Why does it say bowels? The Greek word there has to do with that, that gut felt emotion, that love that we have for one another. He says if it's there, he says fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, being like-minded, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. You see the importance of unity that we work together for the cause of Christ. We don't have time to be putting other brothers and sisters down in this process. We're on the same team protecting that unity. And he says this, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility or lowliness of mind consider others more important than yourself. Consider, uh, listen, it's not about positions and opportunities. It's not about anything we can brag about, whether you're someone serving behind the scenes or whether you're someone that, that stands before the congregation or small groups. It's not about your glory. It's not about your opportunity in the end. It's all about the glory of God. And he says, listen, for God's glory, for the kingdom's sake, consider others better than yourself. Look out for their interests, not your interests. That means that there are times that we're going to demonstrate spiritual depth and maturity by applauding when somebody else gets the opportunity that maybe we wanted. But we see it as a kingdom effort. And so that's got to happen within the church. That also has to happen. And the Holy Spirit has to remind me of this quite often. That has to happen across all church boundaries among the church of the living God. If you look back at Philippians chapter 1, flip back a page if you're still in chapter 2. But in Philippians chapter 1, people were getting upset because there were other people doing some things not quite the same way they were doing it. Paul writes to them and says to some, to be sure, preach Christ out of envy. 
and strife, but others out of goodwill. These do so out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, seeking to cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. He said, there are others, there are folks out there duplicating what we're doing and it's working and they're doing it with the right motives. Others are out there trying to duplicate what we're doing and they're not doing it with the right motives. But hey, in the end, Christ is being preached and the kingdom is expanding and I'm going to rejoice in that. That's what it's all about. We're not in competition with people out there trying to accomplish the same thing we're trying to accomplish. I was speaking to a, a man yesterday and he named, uh, a, I invited him to our church, he's new to the area, and he named a different kind of ministry paradigm. And I, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, I think we have a better ministry paradigm over at Trinity. But he had a, a certain ministry paradigm that he's looking for. And that's great. Because in that ministry paradigm, it is biblical and it is for the glory of God. And we need churches that are doing exactly what he was talking about. And so there are going to be other movements. We might not do things the same way, but we're still on the same team. When I look back at the history of this church that was started in 1982, and we're celebrating our 35th anniversary as a church, and I've been here the majority of those 32 years, either when I was in the youth group or now as pastor. I look back at the history of this church. There are some people who were discipled and mentored here in the 1980s who are leading movements at other places today. And in some cases, they're duplicating what was going on here in the 1980s. That's not a bad thing. There were some good things that happened back then. There are some other churches you can find where people that were discipled and mentored here in the 1990s are at places reproducing what Trinity was doing in the 90s. Some of the positive things I'm talking about their, their worship style and, and everything else they're doing is like what Trinity was in the 90s. And that's great. The kingdom of God is expanding and people are being saved. In the 2000s, the same thing. Those are the first 10 years I was here. We don't do things today the same way we did them then. We still preach and teach the same message. We still have the same core values that the word of God is going to be proclaimed and taught with depth and insight. But our style, our methods are going to change. And so my goal, sometimes I fall into the trap of saying, man, they're doing what we were doing in the 80s. They're doing what we were doing in the 90s. They're doing what we were doing in the 2000s. We need to go back and do this, or we need to do this, we need to do that. And God reminds me through his Holy Spirit, no, I've called you to be a next generational church that continues to be on the cutting edge in this county of reaching the next generation. And so we'll, we'll be different 10 years from now than we are today. And that's okay. And there may be along the way, I know some of us are thinking this morning, wow, I mean, this place is kind of full this morning. We're kind of wall to wall. I remember sitting on this stage when we were worshiping up there and we had built this stage for the power team, not the power team, the strength alliance that came back in like 02 or 03. I remember sitting up here saying, it'd be wonderful one day to just give us a vision, Lord, fill this place up with people. And so God's beginning to do that. 
But we can all, some of you have been here through those years of 80s and 90s and 2000s. Some of you are thinking, man, I can think of like five or 600 people that are now ministering in other places. And if they were all still here, man, we would just, we'd be able to build the biggest church sanctuary and it'd be wonderful. But listen, it's not about Trinity Baptist Church. It's about the kingdom of God. And we need to be able to rejoice And as a pastor, I'm preaching to myself here, not be critical when somebody's doing it the way we used to do it and it's working for them to reach a certain demographic when God's called us to do something to reach a different demographic right here in the same community. The bottom line is 80% of the citizens of Madison County are not in church today, so there's plenty of work to go around. And so I rejoice that God is using people that were mentored and discipled here at Antioch Baptist Church in North Carolina. I rejoice that God is using people who were mentored and discipled here in South Texas and all over this nation. We're not in competition with any of them. We're on the same team working together for the glory of God. And so we need to protect the unity within the church and then we need to protect the unity among churches working together for the same cause. Number two, We need to prioritize the work of God's calling. Now, this is back to chapter 6, what we looked at a moment. See, finishing strong depends on, a lot of times, how important what you're doing is. If it's important, you want to get it done, right? The the enemy, as we saw in verse 1, will intensify his game plan. Sam Ballot, Tobiah, they heard that the wall's about finished. And when the devil sees that he has just a little window of opportunity, he's like in attack mode. Man, I don't have much time left. So when you get close to the finish line, it's not time to coast. Am I right, Coach Hall? <laughs> when, you get, when you get close to the finish line, you finish strong. Or somebody will blow by you, like Tucker did to win a national championship, right? Somebody will blow by you. You finish strong. There's a window of opportunity. The enemy sees it. Whatever project you've embraced, whatever ministry you're involved in, finish that thing strong. That means when you're committed to finishing strong, you're going to do this great work that we read about in verses 2 and 3. And it's going to help us do a few things. It's going to help us overlook distractions. Look back at verse 4 with me again. Four times they sent me the same proposal. Hey, come down from the wall. We want to have a little meeting. And it was all about a distraction. If we can get him away from the work, if we can isolate him, maybe he won't finish the wall here. Maybe he won't finish the work. Anything to pull him away from the work. Anything to distract him. You've heard the story before of uh, of Hank Aaron coming to bat when Yogi Berra was catching. And every Little League baseball player knows that one of the jobs of the catcher unless we're too politically correct to let this go on anymore. One of the jobs of the catcher is to distract the batter. Man, when I was in Little League, they might, you know, talk about your mama or anything else when you were up to bat. You didn't know what the catcher was going to say. It's not sportsmanlike conduct, I get it, but that's the way we played ball when I was a kid, sorry. The job of the catcher was to distract the batter. And so Hank Aaron comes to bat, and, and Yogi's saying, Hank, man, you're holding the bat wrong. You're holding the bat. You're supposed to be able to read the trademark. If you can't read the trademark, you're going to break your bat, Hank. You're going to break your bat. You better hold your bat, right? He just kept on and kept on trying to get him to look at his bat. Hank Aaron hits the ball out of the park, rounds the bases, and he crosses home plate. He said, Yogi, I didn't come here to read. See, the enemy wants to distract us, wants to get us focused on things that God didn't call us to be involved in. Anything away from what we're called to do. 
the disciples had to handle that in Acts chapter 6. Remember when the disciples, as apostles now, the church was beginning to grow. And it says in those days God had been adding to the church, adding to the church. You see that word adding again and again all the way up until chapter 6. And then there was a, a, a fire to put out. There was some grumbling. Some of the widows were being overlooked, and there was a little ethnic problem in the church as well. And, and, and so the, this issue had to be dealt with. And, and so the disciples could have said, okay, we're going to deal with it. We're going to solve this problem. Now bring the rest of the problems. But rather than just dealing with it, they put some leaders in place to deal with it. I believe that was the exceptional work of the, the deacons there. I, th- I think that became what deacon ministry and networking servants within the church was all about. But they they said, here's why we're putting some other people in charge of this, because we're called to spend time in prayer in the Word of God. And if we come away from praying and preaching and teaching the Word of God, then we're going to be busy doing things God hasn't called us to do. And so putting out little fires, and by the way, there are pastors all over this nation and all around this world. I spoke to some in Peru that can spend so much time putting out little fires where somebody got upset about something they probably never should have got upset about anyway. They spend all their time putting out fires that they never get the work done that God's called them to do. And when we've got a priority in our life, it helps us to overcome those distractions. It also helps us to overcome discouragement. Look at verses 5 through 9. Sanballat sent me this same message. A fifth time, by his aid. (laughs) Run this down there. Take this to him, see if we can get him off the wall. In it, it was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem agrees, of course, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason that you are building the wall. According to these reports, you are to become their king. You've got selfish motives here, right? Now, when you're in a position of leadership, you can handle people disagreeing with methods. When somebody says, I don't like the way you're doing that, as a leader, you just have to take it and press on. God calls you to any position of leadership in this church. Somebody, at some time, will probably criticize and say, I would not have done it that way. That's okay, you can handle that. When they question your motives, it becomes heartbreaking. They were questioning the motives here. It says, you've even set up prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf. You're making it all about you, Nehemiah. There is a king in Judah. These rumors will be heard by the king, so come, let's confer together. Then I replied to him, there is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. For they were all trying to intimidate us, saying they will become discouraged in the work and it will never be finished. If God cannot keep me distracted, if God cannot keep Jeff Branson distracted, or if others can't keep Jeff distracted, or Pastor Ben, or the life group leaders, or the deacons, or the Awana, if the devil can't keep us distracted, then what he will try to do is get us discouraged. And if you are a leader in this church, you don't have to give in to that discouragement. If you're not, you need to be praying for the leaders. In fact, you need to be asking yourself, am I a discouragement or am I an encouragement? Because we need to keep those who have accepted positions of responsibility in the body of Christ 
encouraged, not discouraged with criticism and questioning of motives. And so it overcomes discouragement. And what he was saying is still, I'm not coming down. I'm going to send word back. I'm not going to quit doing what I'm doing. I'm not going to pick at this thing. And sometimes it says here, by the way, Nehemiah just kind of ignored this one. And sometimes that's the way to handle things. Listen, there are times where sinful attack within the body is kind of like a cancer and you have to go and do surgery and you have to bring healing the best way you can. At other times, criticism, at other times, discouragement can come from a source that is more like a, like a scab. You know what I'm saying? What, what happens, kids, when you get a scab? Your parents tell you not to do what? Yeah, don't pick at it. Man, it's never going to heal if you don't quit picking at it. You just keep, keep you know, you get that, that little strawberry on your knee because you slid into home plate and you just pick at it and pick at it. And it's going to scar if you don't quit picking. Sometimes the fact that there is a scab there tells you that the bleeding has stopped and the thing's healing up. Just leave it alone. And so sometimes within the body of Christ, we get so aggravated, I've got to run put out this fire, that fire, I've got to end this, end that, when you're just picking at a scab and it's time to just leave it alone. Now it takes spiritual discernment to tell, hey, is this cancer that we need to deal with and do surgery with, or is it a scab that we need to kind of leave alone because it's already, the bleeding has stopped, it's time to let it heal. And so this was one of those cases, I think, where they were overcoming discouragement, saying, hey, we're going to finish the wall, we're going to do what God's called us to do. And then this focus helped them to outsmart the deceivers. There were those who were bringing deception. I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah. This is verse 10. Son of Mahedabel, who was restricted to his house, he said, let us meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let us shut the temple doors because they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you tonight. But I said, should a man like me run away? How can I enter the temple and live? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him spiritual discernment because of the prophecy he spoke against me. Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired so that I would be intimidated, do as he suggested, sin, and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. And he said, my God, remember Tobiah and Sambal, one of those imprecatory prayers again, for what they had done. And Noadiah the prophetess and other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. He outsmarted them because he was walking so closely with God. He had such a firm call on his life that he knew that he was doing what God had called him to do that he said, this is not from God. And there are people, from whether it's from false religions and, and, and other sinful activities in this world that will try to call you aside to get you involved in something and you think it's for your own good. Proverbs 14, 12 says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. The devil himself has tried to trick you, trying to distract you, trying to discourage you and discredit you. And you need to be sensitive and obedient to the Holy Spirit and to the Word of God and know how to discern those traps and not give into them by making it about you. That's why Ezra's role was so important. We're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 8, they begin to look through the Word of God and break it down and explain what the Bible meant to each one there. 
when this happens and God begins to give you victory and you stay involved in the work and you finish the work, finally, let's not forget, this is going to sound so cliche as we close with this last point. It's going to sound like you're like, well, I've already heard that. I grew up in church. But praise God and give him the glory. Don't think, man, because I'm so smart or I'm so spiritual, I made this happen on my own accord. Praise God and give him the glory. It starts back in chapter 5 and verse 13. We see that Nehemiah does have an understanding that this was God's work. The whole assembly said, Amen. That's the way verse 13 closes. And they praised the Lord. The people did as they had promised. Praise God for what he is doing in our midst and for what he's allowing us to be a part of and how he's empowering us to do what he's called us to do. Let's praise the Lord and give him credit for what he's doing, give him the glory for what he's doing. In chapter 5, verse 19, these nobles kept, I'm sorry, uh, looking at chapter 6, chapter 5, verse 19, it says, and by the way, I think it speaks of the authenticity of Nehemiah. He says, remember me favorably, my God, for all that I've done. For this people, I I think it just shows us that Nehemiah was real like us and that I want to be remembered by the mercy of God, but God, man, I'm trying to do something for you here. God knows that. God understands that. We don't have to remind them of that, but it's for his glory. And then in chapter 6, in verse 16, when all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence For they realized that Nehemiah was a great person, right? No, no, no. It says, they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. This task had been accomplished by our God. If you remember when you were a small child, if your dad ever reached around you with those big strong arms and and you were holding a baseball bat and he picked you and the bat up at the same time and knocked the ball out into the field somewhere, You didn't have to tell everybody, I didn't really do that. That was my dad. They saw it. They were watching. And when God puts his arms around us and he does something that only he can do, God gets the glory. And we need to praise him and to give him the glory for what he's doing. It's been said many times that Ronald Reagan had on his desk this plaque that read, there is no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't care who gets the credit. And I think that's a great statement and a great reminder for how we relate to one another, but I think there's a better statement than that. It's found in Colossians 3, 23 and 24. And it says, whatever you do, do it passionately as unto the Lord and not to man, knowing that from the Lord you get the reward. When you do whatever you do to the glory of God, he's the one that empowers you to do it. You're doing it for his glory, and so you praise God and give him the glory for all things. Folks, I want to live my life in a way that glorifies God. Let me tell you why I don't want to start coasting at this point. And I know if somebody, listen, I, I, in a couple of years, I'll celebrate 30 years of being in the ministry. It's crazy to think I know I don't look that old, right? Thank you. <laughs> at least my wife agreed. In a couple of years, I'll celebrate 30 years of being in ministry. Well, I remember I had the privilege to sit under the teaching Dr. Paige Patterson. If you don't know who Paige Patterson is, you need to know who he is because the world's largest Protestant denomination was on the same slippery slope of liberalism with so many other denominations. Dr. Patterson took a stand and motivated so many others to take a stand for the Word of God. 
1992, I would not have headed to Southeastern Seminary had he not gone there that same year as president. I had plans to go to Tennessee. But I ended up at Southeastern Seminary because I heard Dr. Patterson was going there. And I knew he emphasized the expository Bible preaching. I knew he had taken a stand for the kingdom of God and the cause of Christ in, in such a way that it helped turn an entire denomination, the one with the largest missions program in the world around. And I had the privilege of sitting in his theology class. I had a privilege of sitting in his eschatology class and studying end times and, and doctrine of revelation. It was just a powerful time there under his teaching and leadership. And at that time, he was only in his mid-50s. I remember him, we had an opportunity, some of us that were nominated for a particular award that I didn't actually win, but I was humbled to be nominated. And a few of us got to go to the president's house for a breakfast and for time to just talk with him. And I'll never forget what he said to us on that day. He said, young men, the most fruitful years of your ministry is going to be in the harvest years, the fall of your life, when you're in your 50s and your 60s. Most fruitful years. And he said, the sad thing is most guys here in seminary will not still be in ministry when they're in their 50s and 60s. Either they'll throw in the towel or they will do something morally that disqualifies them from the most fruitful years of their life. And he said, don't think you've got to turn the world upside down while you're in your 20s and 30s. Stay close to God. Walk with Him. Stay in the race. And then when you're in your 50s and your 60s, you're going to see the most fruitful years of your ministry. I, I still remember those words. I'm not far from that. By the way, Dr. Patterson is now 75 years old and still the president of Southwestern Seminary in Texas, where he went when he left Southeastern. He handed the torch to a young man he mentored to lead Southeastern. And he's still equipping thousands of young people to turn their world upside down. In other words, he's finishing strong, so I'm inspired by somebody who not only said, stay faithful and finish strong, but someone who did it. Someone I've seen make apologies in humility and confront conflict with grace and dignity. And I remember his words, your fruitful years are going to be later. Finish well. That rings in my ears in church, family, Trinity family. I want to finish well. I don't want to come to a place in my life where I think I can coast from here on out. There's so many preacher friends that I know that got to a certain point, man, my kids are growing, I'm in a comfortable place. Let's just coast. Let's don't do that, church. We, we've seen some vision come about, have we not? God has answered prayers. God has brought healing. God has brought restoration. God has done a great work. Now it's time for us to say, what's next, Lord? What's our vision for tomorrow, the next year, the next 10 years? And run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Would you bow your head with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your amazing grace and your awesome love for us. Lord, I pray for those who feel discouraged or distracted from what you've called them to be about. They've been pulled away from being that spiritual leader or being that father or mother or husband or wife. Today they're choosing 
to stay in the race. I pray that you would give them a fresh feeling of your Holy Spirit, empower them to be obedient to the task. Lord, I pray that it's a new day here at Trinity that we would embrace with great passion what you've laid out before us. We would not see it as time to coast or maintain or be comfortable where we are, but with great excitement and enthusiasm, look forward to what you have next until you come again and call us home. That's when we'll know that our work on earth is done. Until then, may we stay faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.